This week's TribCast is sponsored by Raise Your Hand Texas. No matter what an education voucher is called, the policy is the same. Vouchers divert public funds to private schools and vendors. For more information, visit raiseyourhandtexas.org. And Tex Protects advocates safe childhoods, empowering families, and protecting children through policy development. Learn more at texprotects.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for April 7th, 2023. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. And this week I am joined by politics reporter Patrick Svitek. Hey, Patrick. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for joining. And K-12 through education reporter Brian Lopez. Hey, Brian. Hey, Matthew. Hey, so um, we've got a couple tired reporters here today after... uh, some marathon sessions in the House and Senate yesterday in which um, the House passed its uh, budget bill and the Senate passed a piece of school choice legislation. Today, we are going to specifically hone in on the issue of school choice. As I mentioned, the Senate passed the priority bill, SB8, um, after you know hours of debate yesterday. But in the House, things took a little bit of a different turn for uh, supporters of that bill when uh, an amendment during the budget debate that would ban school vouchers um, and the use of state money for education savings accounts was approved by a majority of the House. That bill or that amendment, um, I would say, less likely to have, you know, be become law, it will likely be stripped out in the Senate, but indicated kind of a difficult political path forward for this legislation moving forward. Brian, you watched both of those debates. I want to talk a little bit about the Senate bill first and about just this policy proposal that is has is now on its way to the House. Tell us a little bit about SB8, what it would do and what its impact might be. Yeah, so uh, SB8 is kind of dubbed as the parental bill of rights uh, priority for the Senate and includes a lot of, um, you know, um, things like extra protections for parents that want to see what their children are learning, a little bit more access to schools and and instructional materials, but also has that piece of, you know, education savings account, you know, which is like a voucher-like program. It's going to, you know, parents are going to have access to $8,000 in a state-controlled account that's going to be able to be used to pay for private school, tuition, uniforms, anything that the state eventually decides is a educational expense. Um, so that's the, the the biggest part of that piece of legislation, um, which would cost, you know, about half a billion dollars, about 62,000 kids uh, would be, you know, be enrolled in the first two years um, through that funding. And, and that was a lot of the debate around it, like who is it really school choice as well when only, you know, 62 some thousand kids out of 5.5 million uh, kids are in the current public school system. Okay, so this bill passes not a particular surprise uh, legislation related to school choice, school vouchers, education savings accounts, whatever you want to call it, um, has, of course, made it through the Senate several times um, in, in past years. Dan Patrick has been a very big supporter of this. You know, it's a notable step in the process, but 
the everyone coming in has always kind of looked toward the house where there's been a lot more skepticism for this uh, uh, around this policy in, in the past. Patrick, you were watching the house yesterday where this amendment came up. Can you tell us a little bit about what the amendment said and just what happened in the house around that vote? Yeah, this was an uh, amendment to the house budget that was proposed and it was a prohibition on using state funds for school vouchers or other similar programs as it put it in the amendment description it specifically mentioned education savings accounts so it is a pretty direct match to what is advancing um, in the senate as brian described um, this is an amendment that the author abel herrero a democrat from robstown has proposed before and has passed um, overwhelmingly before as you said it's unlikely to make it into the final version of the budget so on the substance, it's kind of meaningless, but it's a huge symbolic uh, test vote, as we call it, to kind of show the appetite of the House on this particular issue. Um, and the amendment, this anti-school voucher amendment, was approved by a vote of 86 to 52. Um, but the way we got there was kind of interesting. Um, you know, when this amendment hit the floor, the House Public Education Committee chairman, uh, Brad Buckley, who has been pretty publicly quiet on this issue and hasn't really showed his, uh, you know, cards on this issue, um, he got up and he actually spoke against the amendment, uh, not against the substance of the amendment, but basically offering a procedural case for why they should not uh, approve the amendment, saying that his committee, the House Public Education Committee, is hearing some of these education savings accounts proposals in a hearing on Tuesday so that if they, you know, he didn't want to, uh, as he said, put the cart before the horse and approve this anti-voucher amendment before his committee had a chance to consider these bills. And he made a motion to table it. And that motion to table it, table the amendment, um, uh, failed by, you know, relatively small margin. I think it was uh, 63 to 71 or something like that. Um, so, you know, that was a pretty critical moment because that could have just ended the debate over this amendment right there. But because the motion to table failed, they moved forward um, to an actual vote on the amendment in the past 8652. Um, now, obviously, that shows that there's still not, um, you know, enough appetite in the House, you know, to the majority support they need um, to pass one of these kinds of proposals. Obviously, a majority of 150 members is 76. And so it shows there's still a tough road ahead in the House for this. Um, you know, supporters of school choice or education savings accounts, you know, will rightfully note that this is definitely a closer vote than the last time that this budget amendment came up in 2021. And it was approved 115 to 29. So going from 115 to 29 to 86 to 52 um, is certainly movement in, the, in their direction. Um, but the bottom line here, you know, in, in my analysis is that you had 24 Republicans that joined Democrats on this. And that was even after all the pressure from Governor Abbott. And then, you know, the late plea by the, Brad Buckley, the House Public Education Chair, um, to, you know, not get ahead of themselves on this issue. You still had 24 Republicans join with Democrats on this issue. And th those look like pretty immovable votes to me at this point. Um, those 24 Republicans who joined with Democrats to approve this amendment. Um, you know, how House Republicans, you know, have, uh, you know, it's not necessarily surprising that House Republicans would buck um, Governor Abbott, especially this group of 24. Um, you know, we've seen before that his political capital inside the House Republican caucus can be pretty limited, especially with rural Republicans. Um, but the fact that their own House Public Committee chairman got up there and said, you know, hold off on voting for this, 
let's have the debate in my committee first. And these 24 Republicans still went ahead and defied uh, Brad Buckley. I think that shows that they're pretty dug in on this and that, you know, they're, they're not going to be really changing their mind. Yeah. So basically, in order for a bill like this to pass the House, what you would need is you would need, you know, a, a majority, 74 or sorry, 76 to 74 vote, essentially, which basically means you would need 10 people. Well, you need 12 people who voted for this amendment to ban vouchers to basically flip. But then in addition to that, there were 11 people who registered as present but not voting. Um, one person who is absent, uh, Brian Slayton, who I think we can pretty safely assume is a vote uh, against the amendment. Yeah. Yeah. But um, 11 present not voting, most, not all, but most of whom were Republicans as well. I think so several of whom you could have a, a, a decent degree of skepticism as to whether or not they are also kind of anti this. So you would you would need 12 people to flip and you would need all 12 of those people who didn't vote yesterday as well to to be pro voucher and that to me i mean patrick feels like a as you say a pretty tall ask i mean that's going to have to be a pretty strong you're talking about 24 people that you're going to have to win over here um maybe not an impossible task but a pretty a pretty challenging one yeah it's clear for these 24 you know republicans who are dug in, in that this is like in their top 3 or 5 issues personally, that they're not willing to compromise on. I mean, they're, they're, it's very clear that this is, um, you know, a huge red line for them that they're just not willing to cross. So, um, you know, so again, progress, obviously, for the school choice crowd since the last uh, amendment vote. Um, but it's still hard to think of a path to passage, you know, to getting majority support in the House. Brian, what happens next here? How what are you kind of watching for in the in, in the coming days and weeks? Is the you know we've got a, a a little bit over a month and a half for this issue to be decided. Well, we'll definitely you know be watching the bill as it goes to the House committee, um, but I think maybe even a little bit to keep a closer eye on is how these bills are um how the house versions of these bills are debated in the house chamber you know like the buckley said you know he's going to have the chance to um, bring some of these other education savings account bills in the house committee um which i think on tuesday he's gonna hear some of them um so it'll be interesting to see what happens in that i i do think it's still pretty tough uh for any of those bills to to you know, make it on the floor of the House. Uh, we'll see what happens. But in this case, I think, you know, Senator Creighton, I think, and the senators feel like they've done enough here to be able to appease some of those House members. You know, they had an amendment yesterday that was adopted that would extend, you know, giving small districts that lose kids to these programs, like extra, they had like a two years where they would keep funding schools, they extended that to five. I think they're really trying every you know, different ways to be, you know, try to flip people, those rural Republicans specifically in the House. But as like, you know, somebody from the the Rural Schools Association in our story told us, you know, last night, like there's still a deadline to there that isn't there. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, you know, how this bill moves through the House. Uh, we'll see what, you know, Brandon, what Creighton, um, you know, also tries to create pressure with any of the other education bills coming in through his committee. Um, you know, his other bill that he passed last night, uh, Senate Bill 9, um, you know, 
he kind of passed them in tandem to kind of be like, you know, here, like, like, yes, I'm going to pass this voucher type of program, but Hey, look, I'm also going to provide some money for public schools. And I think that was his big talking point, right? Like, you know, he was not going to pass this, this voucher thing without passing some sort of raises, but I think that's still full, fall shorts, uh, fall short, um, to especially, you know, house members looking at this, this only provides a one-time kind of bonus for teachers. And a lot of, you know, house members, even last night were, you know, trying to push amendments that would, you know, give teachers a, a big raise. So I don't think that'll be enough even to kind of, I guess, uh, get those votes in. All right. Let's, let's pause for a minute and hear from our sponsors, and then we'll, we'll keep talking about the politics of this. Texas Conference for Women. Don't miss the latest episode of Women Amplified, featuring barrier-breaking ballerina Misty Copeland and Target EVP and Chief External Engagement Officer Laisha Ward. For more info, visit conferenceforwomen.org. And row on stage at Zach Theater April 5th through the 30th. This riveting play illuminates the difficult choices women make and the passion each side has for its cause. Get tickets at tickets.zachtheater.org. Okay, so y'all bear with me here. I'm, I'm going to read off a list of the locations of the 24, uh, the hometowns of the 24 Republicans who voted for this banning uh, vouchers amendment yesterday. You had Charlie Guerin from Fort Worth. You had Steve Allison from San Antonio. The rest of the hometowns were New Boston, Jack, uh, Jacksboro, Lufkin, Shepard, Forney, Claiborne, Nacogdoches, San Angelo, Longview, Rockwall, College Station, Canadian, Seguin, Abilene, Odessa, Junction, Amarillo, another College Station representative, Grafford, Temple, Sherman, and Itasca. Not exactly your uh, your metropolises of of Texas, um, <laughs> you know. Really, no one from kind of suburban areas at all. Um, I mean, what we are seeing here, Brian, is strong rural Republican opposition to this idea. Explain to us briefly why that rural opposition exists. Yeah, so um, there's like two two things as to this opposition, right? Like. There's a big, you know, they're very conservative. You know, they don't like that public money would be going to private institutions at, in general, right? Like, especially religious ones. And then there's the fact that, you know, uh, these schools are very, you know, they're community schools. They provide a lot of, in those kinds of, you know, rural towns, they provide jobs, they provide a sense of community. So well, anytime you, you tell them, you know, hey, a kid might leave your school um, to go to a private school and, you know, the, the Texas is going to fund that, you know, that's going to result in less money for them, right? Like if a kid leaves, that's less funding. They don't have that kid anymore. Um, so, you know, anything that would really destabilize a school there is not going to, you know, fare well for, for, uh, uh, is not a good thing for those Republicans. Um so I think those are the two biggest points. That's why they're so, you know, against this and they why they're not really willing to budge. And, you know, they always say, you know, I'm talking to my superintendents down there and, you know, they're already already losing enrollment. So if you're going to bring in something that could potentially, um, you know, uh, continue to uh, siphon kids out, that's going to be a big no for them. And one of the, you know, big uh, talking points that, um, Senator Creighton had, you know, in his bill was, you know, 
he was saying, speaking to rural Republicans last night, I think he was saying, you know, in other places we found that, you know, rural kids don't even use these ESA programs, right? Because there's no private schools around them. Mm -hmm. And that's true, right? Like there's not really a lot of options down there, but still you're not going to get, you know, I think there it's a united front where if you kind of threaten a funding, you threaten a community school, and then you threaten it with, you know, taking taxpayer money to put it into a private institution that's not going to be held accountable to taxpayers. That, you know, adds a, a whole lot, another layer as to why they would oppose this. Have yeah, you- and also too, I mean, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, just expand on that. Like, I feel like the argument, you know, the Abbott is tethering this to like parent concerns about curriculum and alleged indoctrination in the classroom. And I feel like in some of these rural communities, it just, you know, it, it falls flat because as Brian pointed out, these are already deeply conservative places and um, parents you know, are not grappling with teachers who are like teaching that they're 16 genders or something. These are fellow deeply conservative people that are, you know, teaching their kids. Um, I'm sure there's, you know, one-off incidents that you've seen highlighted on social media. Um, but I feel like, and you talk to rural lawmakers and they feel the same way that, you know, Abbott is obviously making a full throw to push on this and adding this layer of indoctrination and wokeness allegedly. Um, but in rural communities, um, either I think the rural lawmakers just disregard that. They don't see it as a problem in their schools or it backfires. It, it, it takes like, um, you know, it, it seems like uh, an attack on teachers um, that they know well and that they know aren't teaching these things, you know, in the way that, um, you know, Abbott is, is suggesting they are, you know, it's it funny when Cody Harris, who's one of these rural Republicans, when he spoke at Abbott's, uh, you know, event on this issue in his district, you know, he, he said Abbott, I don't have the exact quote, but he said, you know, Abbott is putting parents in the driver's seat and helping us push back on the woke indoctrination that we're seeing from urban schools. <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. you know, and that was Cody Harris's way of, of telling his, you know, maybe trying to tell his constituents that like, you know, Abbott is doing this because of what's being taught in our big cities. Um, you know, but we've heard Abbott say on record that this stuff, he believes this stuff is happening regardless of whether it's urban or rural. And I just feel like that argument in rural communities um, falls flat or, or backfires and just seems like an attack on teachers who are already kind of salt, you know, who, who who lawmakers already view as kind of fellow deeply conservative salt of the earth people. Yeah, I, I it seems like the argument for this is that there's, you know, there seems to be in a sufficient amount of places enough bad things going on in schools that parents should be supported to pull their kids out of schools and send them somewhere else with the financial support of the state at the you know financial expense of the school the public school systems and i thought it was really interesting i went back and looked at the february 2023 ut poll of voters um they asked the question what do you think of the quality of k through 12 public school education in texas and statewide among registered voters 47% said the quality was good and 41% said it was not good but the partisan breakdown of it was really fascinating Democrats, the answer was 40% good and 50% not good. And among Republicans, 56% said good and 36% said not good. I mean, if you look at that, at at least at that particular poll, the suggestion would seem to be that Republicans on a whole seem to be actually happier with their public school education than than Democrats are. And there's some demographics about that and, you know, how many, how many, uh, um, you know, uh, 
Republicans are in suburbs where there's there's you know higher performing on test score schools and everything like that. But it's just it's interesting to see this message of you know the schools are so bad we need to give students other options when when the voters who are putting Greg Abbott into office, you know, on average are are maybe a little bit more supportive. I just like am a little bit um fascinated by the politics of this because on the other hand in that same poll they asked kind of the school choice question would you be supportive of you know a voucher like program essentially and a plurality of texas voters said that they would they were they supported it it was 46 41 in favor of that that bill so like when you look kind of broadly statewide this is not a hugely unpopular idea. And you look at other things that are, you know, significantly less popular that have been, you know, kind of sailed through the legislature in recent years, such as abortion restrictions or, uh, you know, uh, constitutional carry, permitless carry of handguns that poll significantly worse than that. Well, I, I think you're seeing, go, go ahead. I was going to say, I feel like in the poll numbers, Voters are sometimes a little more sophisticated than we give them credit for. I think it's possible to be satisfied with the public education system or be, or, you know, which usually is a reflection of, are you satisfied with your, your school. public school, right? Not necessarily the whole system. I mean, in polling, I think that gets conflated, but I think you can be satisfied with the public school uh, that you're sending your kid to, but also believe that there should be, you know, expanded options for other parents who may not be satisfied. Totally. Um, but the poll, you're right though. The polling on the surface sometimes looks pretty uh, uh, idiosyncratic, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right. So, Patrick, I mean, here's the big, big question. Then we have this. It's clearly a very uphill battle to get this through the legislature this session. That being said, Dan Patrick and Greg Abbott seem, you know, at least publicly to be signaling a willingness to do this fight. Um, correct me if you think I'm wrong here. We do not see that kind of signaling from the House Speaker. I think the best way to classify his support of this is tepid at best, non-existent at worst, right? You know, he did not signify this as a priority uh, this session. He, I'm, I'm not sure if I've heard him say one way or another whether he would support such a bill, kind of more leaving it up to the will of the House, but we just saw an indication of the will of the House. So how much are, how much of an indication do we see that Dan Patrick or Greg Abbott are willing to kind of fight for this and if if they are willing to fight for this what tools do they have at their disposal to get it through well legislatively you know this is the time of of session or not necessarily the time but we're approaching the time of session where there's plenty of hostage taking that goes on one chamber bottles up another chamber's priority and they don't let it go until the other chamber agrees to move on one of their priorities um so we're, we're going to see um, you know, that happening in the coming weeks. And we'll see if these ESA proposals are going to be part of that hostage taking. Um, you know, Abbott is going to continue to publicly campaign on this. I just saw this morning that he's going to continue these parent empowerment nights. He's got one in San Antonio next week. Um, so I think publicly we're going to hear him banging the drum on that. Um, you know, that's that's not going to end. Um, I will say, though, in terms of, you know, hostage taking and kind of session end game, Phelan and Patrick have, you know, themselves a lot of other priorities that they want to get across the finish line. I mean, this is even though Abbott's kind of made this his top issue for the session, um, I don't think it's the top issue for especially not Phelan. And, and, you know, even though Patrick's been always vocal about this, Patrick's got other things that he wants to get across the finish line probably more than this. And Patrick's been through the fire on this before. He knows how tough of a battle it is based on 2015 and 2017. So 
Patrick is probably, uh, you know, again, even though he's a vocal champion of this, uh, probably, you know, at this point in his political career, a little more of a, a realist or, you know, having a more pragmatic, cold-hearted, pragmatic view on it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, um, just given that there are so many other priorities, I think that there's going to be, you know, leverage making and hostage taking on at the end here. Sure. Brian, I mean, is there any indication, what, what, is there anything that can be done, do you think, that could sweeten the pot for this? Is there a more acceptable version of this to members of the House? Or was this a pretty emphatic no that we saw yesterday? I think uh, I think it's a pretty emphatic no. Um, just like as you both of you mentioned before, like if you look at the votes needed for something like this to, uh, to pass, I think they made it very clear, you know, and, you know, that if this comes to a vote on the floor, you know, this is going to be something that will have a tough time um, passing. I just don't see a scenario that would make, you know, maybe if they added, you know, the, the hold harmless right now is for, is for you know, schools with 20,000 20, students or less, you know, or districts with 20,000 students or less, maybe if they added, if they expanded that to every, but that's, you're talking about, you know, much more money that would have to be allocated to this program. Right. Um, maybe if they added, you know, homeschoolers, if they added every private, like if it was, you know, truly universal in the sense where, you know, right now it's like, you had to be, you either are entering a Texas public school or you were in a Texas public school the year before and only a certain amount of private schools kids so there is some like there is calls to make it more universal i just don't know like you know if, if this kind of program where it is it's not truly universal you know if it if this program that senator creighton has laid out is facing you know it's relatively small it's only a 62 it's a 62k cap with you know these other provisions right with a parental rights provision and things like that if this has you know trouble um you know, the house made it clear that, you know, whatever comes this way, it's not going to work. I'm not sure what else they can really do to, to sweeten the deal. You know, one interesting thing about this topic is the long game that supporters of this proposal have been um, playing, you know, I mean, you know, dating back to the early days of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, where this was a big issue, that was, I think, 1989, when when that was created. Um, you know, as we've mentioned, it's it's a kind of re every two year occurrence for there to be a rally on the Capitol steps where people, you know, in support of school choice are wearing these uh, yellow scarves and, and, and proclaiming the support from this. And, 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 and Patrick, you said about how, um, you know, this, this similar, uh, amendment passed with 115 votes in, in, in 2021, uh, only 86 this time around, maybe they're stepping in the right direction. And, and, and one way to do that is, you know, through the primaries, right. And to support candidates who do support this, how vulnerable do you think those 24, are those 24 republicans are maybe not this year but you know next year when they're when they're back up for re-election yeah they're gonna have problems um but you know some of them are veterans of, of contested primaries before i mean i think it's safe to say that someone like charlie garen uh you know just rolls his eyes these days when he hears talk of uh you know a competitive primary i mean some of these guys have really you know i mean ken king for example they've all had you know, there's a group of these 24 that have definitely had tough primaries before and they probably and they prevailed and they, and they believe that this time won't be any different. 
um, you know, you know, excuse me, obviously, you know, you know, there's a new rhetorical device here and that with all this talk of indoctrination and, and you know, uh, COVID mandates being tethered to school choice, you know, the attack in the primary is going to be a little more point at this time. And it's going to be, you know, Ken King, you know, voted to, you know, trap your kid in a school where they're, you know, making him wear a mask and, you know, swear allegiance to radical liberals in their textbooks or something like that. So, you know, I mean, it's, you know, the rhetoric has a new layer to it in these primary campaigns. But I think those 24 people, as I said, I mean, I think they're very confident in their position, both substantively and politically. Uh, as I just said, a, a chunk of them have been through very competitive primaries before and prevailed, sometimes resoundingly. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it could be a tough primary season for them, but it, it's maybe not something they haven't experienced before. All right. Well, we shall see. It'll be an interesting uh, thing to watch play out over the next coming weeks. Thank you, uh, Patrick. Thank you, Brian. And thank you to our producer, Justin. And thank you to our sponsors, Raise Your Hand Texas, Tex Protects, Texas Conference for Women, and Zach Theater. We'll talk to you all next week. Join us on April 11th for a conversation with lawmakers and advocates about recent legislative efforts to push back against illegal fentanyl and the drastic increase in opioid overdose deaths in Texas. RSVP at texastribune.org events.